When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Fans for Sports Network listeners, welcome to another episode of The Call Sheet. This is your host, Kevin Smith, podcaster here at FFSN, contributor to the Steel Curtain Network, head football coach at Ocean City High School in Ocean City, New Jersey, and thrilled to be with you for episode number 27 of our little show. I'm glad that everybody had an opportunity to Get through another week of football. Week six is in the books. It's been a fascinating season so far. Really interesting stuff happening. Um, I mean, I think week six was dominated by some upsets, some some really exciting play from some underdog type players, major injuries that are really having a devastating effect on the NFL season. Points are down. Defenses are playing well. Lots to talk about. So we're going to get to some of those conversations in this episode, but I mentioned it's episode 27, which means right out of the gate, time for us to talk about an NFL player who wore that number. And the man I want to talk about today was a grown man indeed, and that was number 27, Eddie George, running back for the Tennessee Titans for nine seasons. Actually, eight. I forget. I forget sometimes. Eddie George ended his NFL career with the Dallas Cowboys, which which was odd. It's always weird to see. A, a guy who's with one franchise for a long time, and you really identify with that franchise, switching jerseys near the end of of their career. I, I can I can never get used to seeing Joe Montana in a Chiefs jersey, and maybe Tom Brady in a in a uh, in a Buccaneers jersey. I guess was something you could get used to because he won the Super Bowl with the Bucks. But oftentimes, it's that late career guy that catches on with a team for a year or maybe two in the dwindling moments of their career. Emmett Smith with the Arizona Cardinals. If you want to go way back, Frank Harris with the Seattle Seahawks. And you just think to yourself that that doesn't feel right. But yeah, so Eddie George, right? Number 27 Heisman trophy winner, 1995, 1996 NFL rookie of the year, nine NFL seasons, seven of which he had over a thousand yards ended with over 10,000 for his career. And Eddie George today is the head coach at Tennessee state university and his tigers are off to a four and two start. So congratulations to Eddie George. But what I really want to talk about as far as Eddie George is concerned is, is a rivalry. So it's not really just about Eddie George. It's about Eddie George and the man who was his chief rival on the football field and became one of his closest friends off the field. And that is Ray Lewis. And for those of you who are younger and you may not remember Ray Lewis, number 52 linebacker of the Baltimore Ravens, maybe the best pure inside linebacker of the past 30 years in the NFL. I don't know if there's anybody I can compare him to today who would do the comparison justice because the game has changed. And Ray Lewis was an old school thumper, a downhill linebacker with 
such an intimidating presence. And one of the few NFL players who I've seen other NFL players appear to be visibly afraid of. I remember Ray Lewis breaking Richard Mendenhall's shoulder on, on a hit. I mean, a broken shoulder, that's not an injury yet. In dislocation separations a broken shoulder that's not really something that happens how hard you got it how hard do you have to hit a guy to break their shoulder and ray lewis was the centerpiece of an amazing baltimore defense in the late 90s early 2000s uh you know like i said man the game has just moved in a different direction it's it's more it's more horizontal these days it's more sideline to sideline and 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 teams are are replacing some of the downhill thumpers like ray lewis with with faster backers not that Ray Lewis couldn't move sideline to sideline he could but I wonder if he would be a three down backer in today's game or if he would be a two down guy who got subbed out for maybe like a a big nickel or a or an extra safety on third downs and the other reason why Ray Lewis couldn't play in the game today is because they've just taken so much of the hitting out of it and he was such a hitter like we just mentioned with Richard Mendenhall and his rivalry with Eddie George was something special you got, you got to remember that back in the 1990s, Baltimore and the Tennessee Titans, for whom Eddie George played, they were in the same division. They were in the old AFC Central. And the NFL didn't realign their divisions until 2002. So the Baltimore-Tennessee rivalry was one of the most ferocious in the league at that time. It, it, it quickly got replaced by Baltimore-Pittsburgh. And Baltimore-Pittsburgh went on to be, and may still be, the best rivalry in the NFL. But in the late 90s, it was Baltimore-Tennessee. And those games were absolute slugfest. The Ravens were probably the most physical NFL defense of the last 25, 30 years. The Titans were a downhill power run team led by Steve McNair, a six foot three, 240 pound quarterback, and Eddie George, a six foot three, 240 pound tailback. And they they played smash mouth football. And when Baltimore and Tennessee got together, those slugfests were special. And at the epicenter, of course, of that rivalry were George and Lewis, who were just so physical. Uh, there's a there's a disputed story about whether or not Ray Lewis actually knocked Eddie George out cold on a play in a 1997 game. Lewis claims he did. Eddie George denies it. But they these guys, you know, they came up in the same draft class. Uh, they knew each other as college players. They built a friendship around their training for the NFL draft. They immediately became professional rivals, but they had a great mutual respect for one another. And in the midst of these great Tennessee-Baltimore games, probably the one that stands out the most is the 2000 playoff game where, where an underdog Ravens team went into Tennessee who was 13-3 and three or 14-2. and two. I can't remember what their record was exactly, but it was something like that, like that. They were the number one seed in the AFC. They were at home in the divisional round, expected to be the Super Bowl uh, participant from the AFC. And Baltimore knocked them off. And the quintessential moment from that contest was late in the fourth quarter with Baltimore leading 17-10 to and Tennessee driving the football, trying to get into the end zone for the tying touchdown. McNair threw a pass to Eddie George that clanked off of Eddie George's hands and right into the hands of Ray Lewis, and Ray Lewis ran it back all the way for a a game-clinching touchdown. Heartbreaking moment for George and the Titans. And when that game was over, after all the interviews and after everybody had cleared out, Eddie George showed up in the Baltimore locker room. And Ray Lewis commented that when when he saw Eddie George standing outside, he wasn't sure if he was there to hug him or fight him. But as it turns out, Eddie George was simply there to congratulate 
his friend and rival Ray Lewis, and essentially to say, hey, it, it was going to be one of us, me or you, and now go go on and win it all. And the Ravens did. The Ravens did with a big Super Bowl win over the New York Giants. So the Eddie George-Ray Lewis rivalry really stands out to me as one of the last great rivalries from an era of football that's not that long ago, the late 1990s, early 2000s, but feels much longer because of the way the game has changed. There just aren't rivalries like that where that physicality is involved. So my hat's off to number 27, Eddie George and his great rival, Ray Lewis. All right, let's move on, man. I did this last time, last uh, episode on the show. I, I did one quick thought, one quick thought on all of the games from the recent week. And I'm going to do that right after week six. All my, all my quick week six thoughts, uh, one for each contest. But before I do that, let's just, let's talk about two general thoughts real fast. Two general thoughts about the league right now and where the league is. You know, I mentioned in the intro that, uh, that scoring's down and that defenses are, are playing some very good football. And just to give you an idea, right, I talked about this on last week's show, so I'm not going to go too far into it. But to further that point, of the 14 games that took place this past weekend, 12 of those games saw the two teams involved combine, combine for 40 points or less. 12 out of those 14 games saw the teams combine for 40 points or less. You look at some of the scores, right, 19-8, 19-13, how many, how many times do you get three games where the winning team has 19 points? I'd love to see somebody dig that stat up. Has it ever happened in NFL history where on a single weekend, the winning team, uh, three winning teams, I should say, had 19 points? But again, you know, 20 to 13, 20 to 6, 14 to 9. These are incredibly low scoring games. And NFL scoring is down all the way across the board. The average points per game of NFL teams this year is just over 21 points per game, which would be the lowest that it's been in over a decade. And this is coming out of time when the NFL is trying very, very hard to promote scoring. And the rules have changed to, to benefit offenses. And, you're, you know, you can't touch a quarterback these days. And it's just really interesting to see why that is. And I, and I gave some reasons on last week's show, some of the schematic reasons. But that's something that's something to look for as as the as we go forward. What what are some of the deeper reasons beyond scheme as to why scoring is down? And you know that 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 speaks about two things. Then it speaks about coaching. Are the defensive coordinators and defensive minded coaches in the league ahead of the offensive coaches now? I mean, the league's been trending towards offense for a long time. Is this now a renaissance for the defensive coaches in the league? And how much have injuries contributed? We, we've seen some significant injuries, in particular at the quarterback position, and how much are they contributing to scoring being down? So we'll look for those trends as we push forward with this NFL season. But now, one quick thought about each NFL game. So let's start with last Thursday night's game, KC Denver, 19-8 Chiefs win. Travis Kelsey had a big game. And guess who he had a big game in front of, ladies and gentlemen? He had a big game in front of Tay-Tay, Taylor Swift. And I'm going to just briefly say this, and then I, I, I promise I will never revisit the subject. My daughter, who is five, is a huge Taylor Swift fan. And on Saturday night, we went to the movie theater and we saw the movie of the Taylor Swift tour. I guess it's, is it Eras or I don't know, something like that. Whatever her, the name of her tour is. And we saw all two hours and 45 minutes of it. And I endured 
uh, dozens, I'm going to say, of screaming tweens, uh, 10, 11, and 12-year-olds who were screaming for approximately two hours and 45 minutes. But hey, my daughter had a blast. She danced and jumped around, and it was like one of the great nights of her life. And so it was certainly worth it. I did my dad duty. I, I put some credit in the dad bank for that one, and I was happy to do it. Even if, uh, even if at this point, if I never hear another Taylor Swift song, I won't be disappointed. But anyway, Travis Kelsey, man, showing out in front of Tay-Tay. Baltimore, uh, 24-16 winner over Tennessee, over in England. And the Ravens dominated the game, and they should be happy they dominated the game. But Baltimore kicked six field goals. And three of those field goals came after they had penetrated Tennessee's 10-yard line in goal-to-go situations. Baltimore is now two out of 10. Uh, two for 10 in its last 10 red zone trips in terms of scoring touchdowns, two touchdowns, eight field goals in their last, that's actually not even true. Two touchdowns, six field goals and two times that they've turned the ball over on downs by going for it inside the 20. And, and the Ravens, the Ravens look like a really good team, man. And they look like they could be a contender to win the AFC, which suddenly feels wide open. But if they don't solve their red zone issues, they were great in the red zone early in the season, but if they don't get better at it, or out of this slump that they're in, that's going to be something that comes back to bite them. So that's something to watch for too. Baltimore in the red zone. Washington, 24-16 winner over Atlanta. Some bad interceptions by Desmond Ritter. And a lot of conversation as to whether or not Atlanta will be ready to move on. Will they Will they move on to Taylor Heineke? I don't know, man. I, you know, the, the Falcons were my pick to win the, the NFC South. They still could. There's no dominant team in that division by a, a long stretch. Uh, but it, it's it's Ritter struggling, and I don't know if moving to Taylor Heineke helps them. Minnesota beat Chicago nineteen thirteen. Bad week for the Justins in that game. Justin Jefferson, he will now be on the shelf for a while with with his injury. He went on IR and is out for at least the next four weeks. And then Justin Fields, the Chicago quarterback, goes out with a I believe it's a bruised hand. I don't know if they diagnosed it as broken a uh, thumb specifically. Um, but they're going to have to wait till the swelling goes down on him. It looks like he's going to be out for a little bit. Rough day for the Justins there. The Browns, 1917 winners over the San Francisco 49ers. And P.J. Walker, more on him in the second part of this show. Quarterbacks Cleveland to a win as Deshaun, uh, Deshaun Watson is out. And that's a shocking result. Shocking result. But maybe not as shocking as it seems once you sort of like dig in as to why they won. Shocking because P.J. Walker was the quarterback, but San Francisco played most of that game without Christian McCaffrey and Debo Samuel. And the Cleveland defense is clearly a top three unit in the NFL right now. They have given up less total yards through five games than any team since 1950, since these statistics began to be recorded. 1,005 yards over five games or an average of of just over 200 yards per game. So Cleveland has been dominant on defense, and that's allowing the Browns now to stick around despite the fact that, you know, they're playing without Nick Chubb and, in this instance, without Deshaun Watson. Miami, 42, Carolina, 21. I think the most shocking number in this game is that the Panthers led this game 14-0 at the end of the first quarter. And then over the final three quarters, Miami outscored Carolina 42-7. to So that that's, uh, you know, either a... a uh, Example of a fired-up Carolina team, Miami being a little sluggish, Miami overlooking them. But that sort of felt like one of those college games where the underdog gets up and then the SEC you know, rolls over the, the, the unfortunate victim 
from FBS that they have scheduled for that contest, or FCS, I should say. One double A. It's still one double A to me. The Jags over the Colts, 37 to 20. I think the thing that dominated that that game is just that the the Anthony Richardson injury is now probably going to keep him out for the rest of the season. And that's really unfortunate. I think that Indy was reckless with him. I'll be honest, man. I I, I thought that they subjected him to just too many hits early on in his career over his first four or five games. And now they're going to pay the price for that. And he's not the only one that that we see injured as, uh, you know, Bryce Young has already sat a game. These guys are going to, these, these NFL teams are really going to have to manage their rookie quarterbacks uh, a little bit better. And Indy's going to pay the price for that one. The Texans beat the Saints 20 to 13. Another rookie quarterback, CJ Stroud, has still yet to throw an interception. Incredible streak for him. And what a great job by head coach D'Amico Ryans and his offense coordinator, Bobby Slawak, and the Houston staff. They've done an amazing job so far of taking one of the least talented rosters in the NFL and getting them to three and three. That's really impressive. So awesome job so far by Houston. Vegas beats New England 21-17. That game ended up with Brian Hoyer quarterbacking against Bailey Zappi. And that is not something the NFL wants to see. The injuries, the injuries, and especially at the quarterback position, have been significant. Jimmy G gets hurt and knocked out of that game. Now, Mac Jones got benched, so that wasn't an injury. But still, the NFL doesn't want a whole lot of Hoyer versus Zappi games. And I mean, I just hope that they don't overreact and change the rules again, because what, you know, what can you do now to a quarterback? What, how, how do you hit a quarterback? I don't know. It's a, it's a frustrating uh, issue. The Rams beat the Cardinals 26 to nine. The Rams rushed for 179 yards. When Sean McVay gets the run game going, look out, man, because that sets up so much else of what he wants to do. He has a, he's a play action uh, coach at heart and you don't always need the run game to be clicking to set up the play action but when it is play action can be deadly so if the rams get that run game going look out they could be uh a a playoff team in the nfc the jets knocked off philly 20 to 14 in another shocking result and you know i think maybe the thing that was the most shocking about that was the the interception jalen hurts threw near the end with philly leading 14 12 and really trying to run the clock out forcing a ball into double coverage that gets picked with less than two minutes to go run all the way back down inside the 10, the Jets punch it in. But here's the even crazier thing. Philly fans, they're kind of okay. I mean, they're bummed, they're disappointed, but there isn't anybody screaming for Jalen Hurts' head. There isn't anybody screaming for Nick Sirianni's head. I mean, that's Philly is like, I mean, you would talk about a town that overreacts. I mean, this is the this is the city that I live closest to. I'm very familiar with Philadelphia sports. And I mean, knee-jerk reactions are just the norm in Philly and the Philly fans are okay. And maybe it's because the Philadelphia Phillies are on this amazing run and look to be headed towards the World Series. I don't know. Maybe they are just got Bryce Harper mania in Philly. But they're not killing the Eagles right now, which is a little bit shocking. Detroit, the Lions win again. They beat Tampa 20-6. to The Lions are now 5-1. and They have been totally worthy of the hype so far this season. And I don't know if there's a more fun team to root for right now in the NFL than Detroit. Their games are be, are becoming must-watch TV. More on that in the second part of this show, which we'll get to in just a minute. But we got two more games. The Bills beating the Giants 14-9 to in a game where, once again, the officiating really reared its ugly head. And I only say it like that, not as a shot at officials, because I know how hard officiating football games are. It's extremely difficult. But the rules changes now have made it so that I don't think the officials know how to call the game anymore. 
And the best example of that was in that Bills-Giants game. You saw the Bills drive down all the way to the to the five-yard line, to the to the Giants' five-yard line. I'm sorry, to the Bills' five-yard line. The Giants drive down uh, with, with one play left on the clock. One play. That's it. That's all they got time for. And they're on the, the one or they're on the five and they throw a pass into the end zone and you get a pass interference call, which in and of itself, I don't have an issue with, right? I mean, pass interference uh, is a very subjective call. There was a grab on there. You could have called it. You didn't have to call it, but he flagged it. And that gave them one untimed down from the one yard line. And then from the one yard line, when they ran that one untimed down, there was an egregious, in my opinion, hold on tight end Darren Waller that doesn't get flagged. What makes one a flag and the other not a flag? I don't think the NFL officials know. Terry McCauley, who was like the on-TV uh, refer- uh, interpreter, who, which all the channels have now, which I think you want, you want to talk about an indication of the officiating being suspect. The fact that they even need uh, a an official in a booth interpreting things for fans is a bad sign. It just It means like nobody knows how to call the game anymore. And McCauley tried to explain why you know one was pass interference and the other wasn't, and his explanation was was not very good. So I just don't think that the refs know what they're doing, and and, and it's not because of referee incompetence; it's because of the way that the that the game has changed so much to make force them into making calls that are so judgmental and happen in split seconds. And lastly, on Monday Night Football, the Cowboys knock off the Chargers 20-17. to 17, And what was a really good game? And my quick takeaway on that is that that was a great example of how big-time players make big-time plays in big moments. Micah Parsons had been quiet all game long. Dallas did not have a single sack. But with the Cowboys leading by three and the clock running down and the Chargers needing to drive into field goal range to at least get a shot to tie the game, Michael Parsons came through, split a double team, and you know absolutely crushed Justin Herbert with a sack. That, if we're talking about officiating, they could have called it a pass interference because he landed on Justin Herbert with all of his body weight, which again is one of the most ridiculous rules interpretations I've ever heard of. How how do you expect an NFL player, a defensive lineman, to wrap up a quarterback and bring him to the ground, but as he is in sort of mid fall? to redirect his body so that he does not land on said quarterback with all of his body weight. Absurd, absurd rule. But if you're enforcing the letter of the rule, Parsons landed on Herbert with all of his body weight. I'm thrilled that they didn't call it because they shouldn't have. But if you're going by the rule, the rule of law, they could have. So there you go, man. One quick thought on every game over the weekend. You got some officiating issues. You got some injuries. You got defenses dominating, got underdogs. There's a lot going on in the NFL right now. It's really exciting. Okay, we're going to take a break. And on the other side, we're going to talk about one of the things I think is really most thrilling, and that is underdogs, both both teams, but more so players. Who are some of the the -the off-the-radar players who are making a splash either just maybe one time or, or even in the bigger picture consistently in the NFL this season? And what is it about rooting for an underdog that is so gratifying? So more on that on the other side. Come on back. Hey, it's Kate. 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back to the call sheet. Kevin Smith with you. And in the second part of the show, we're going to talk uh, about some, uh, for me, what, what is a really compelling topic. I've always been a fan in my life of the underdog. I, I even remember the cartoon underdog from when I was a little kid and watching that uh, probably five years old and, you know, the, the, just the old grainy TV from the 1970s and sitting in front of it and not even really knowing what an underdog was. I don't, I think the, the time I actually first began to understand the notion of an underdog was watching Super Bowl 10 with my family. That's the super, that's the Super Bowl that really, that made me a Pittsburgh Steeler fan. And there was a moment in that game where Pittsburgh Steelers kicker Roy Jarilla shanked a field goal on Dallas Cowboys safety. Cliff Harris kind of grabbed Jarilla and taunted him. And Steelers linebacker Jack Lambert came over and flung Harris to the ground and then sort of stood over him in defense of his kicker. And I immediately fell in love with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, and, I, and I've been a lifelong Steelers fan ever since. But, but there was a moment in that game where I remember my uncle, who was a, a big Eagles fan and, and disliked the Dallas Cowboys, so, of course, he was rooting for the Steelers. But I remember my uncle saying, we're rooting for the Steelers because they're the underdog. And I don't even know if they were. They might have, they might have even been the favorite. I don't, I, don't, I don't really remember, to be quite honest. They were the defending Super Bowl champs, so they may have been the favorites. But he used that term, and I didn't know what that term meant. And I asked him, and he said, you know, it's the little guy. And I understood it like that, you know, because I was a little guy at the time. And, you, you know, you root for the little guy because when the, when the little guy rises up, and conquers the big guy. There's really no more compelling story than that. That that's, you know, that goes back to biblical times, man. That's David and Goliath. And that's been a compelling narrative in some of the best fiction in history and some of the best movies in history. And it's a wonderful narrative in sports. And I think when you look around the NFL right now, there are some underdogs worth rooting for both as individuals and as teams. I mean, I, just, just a couple names, right? When we look around the league right now. In the, in the Monday night game, Austin Eckler of the Los Angeles Chargers was on display there. And, and they flashed a graphic during the game that said that over the past 15 years, Eckler is one of only four NFL players to score 15 or more touchdowns in two consecutive seasons. And that's fairly remarkable considering that Austin Eckler, all five foot 10, 195 pounds of him, was a undrafted free agent out of Division II Western Colorado. And that he has now, of course, gone on to become the starting running back and, and really a, a, a marquee player on one of the better offenses in the NFL in Los Angeles. Or I think about Isaiah Pacheco, the starting running back for the Kansas City Chiefs. I've I've talked about Isaiah Pacheco before, largely because of a personal connection. I coached against Isaiah Pacheco. I watched 
Isaiah Pacheco run up and down our field, our home field, and beat us in a game when he was a freshman playing running back and they converted him essentially to wildcat quarterback, where in the fourth quarter, they simply ran him right and ran him left and ran him on power plays and ran him on sweeps. And I think we had about 13 defenders in the box and we still couldn't stop him. And he just, he just willed it to happen. And they beat us in that game. And I've been following him ever since. And he went on to Rutgers University, but he was a seventh round draft pick by the Kansas City Chiefs, one of the most prolific offenses of modern football. And you thought, well, he'll be lucky to make the roster. And yet here he is, not only having made the roster, but he's the starting running back. And he's in the top 10 in the NFL so far this year in rushing yards. And he's already a Super Bowl champ in just his second season. Where you think about, you know, a, guy, a, a bigger name, a name that a lot of people are familiar with, who's, you know, Adam Thielen, who, who back in 2013 was an undrafted free agent out of Minnesota State, which, you know, I, maybe I'm wrong. I always think Minnesota State is like where Craig T. Nelson coached in the TV show Coach. I feel like he was the coach at Minnesota State. I'm probably wrong. But Adam Thielen, man, 10 years in the league, 600 plus catches, 7,000 yards, a couple of Pro Bowls. Again, pretty amazing for an undrafted free agent. And one more guy, one more name that's a fairly big name in the NFL. Matthew Judon, the, the defensive end, now of the New England Patriots, formerly of the Baltimore Ravens. Another guy from, from a, a small school, Grand Valley State, a D2 school, a fifth-round draft pick, guy not given much of a chance who's gone on so far now to make three Pro Bowls and amass over 70 career sacks. Those are just some of the names of some of the – under uh, under the radar guys who didn't attract a lot of attention coming out of high school or even coming out of college who have gone on to be very, very successful in their NFL careers. And I think about those names when I reflect back on this past weekend, right? The week six games, because PJ Walker, the undrafted free agent quarterback out of Temple University, quarterback the Browns to a big win over the previously undefeated San Francisco 49ers. And that is not something I think anybody had on their bingo card. P.J. Walker quarterbacking the Browns to a win over an undefeated Niners team. And, you know, P.J. Walker's a great story, man. He grew up in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is a really, really tough town. One of those sort of tough North Jersey cities like Newark and Patterson, where there's a lot of, lot of issues, man. Awful lot of kids don't make it out of Elizabeth. He went to Elizabeth High School and and then went to Temple University, which is another place that's in a tough spot in Northeast Philadelphia. I mean, he's a guy that's just grown up in some tough environments and it's obviously made him a resilient individual because he comes out of Temple as an undrafted free agent and he, uh, you know, eventually catches on with the Carolina Panthers. Um, and, you know, he's he's out of the league there for a little bit. He's in the XFL. Uh, he comes back into the league. He bounces around with a couple teams. He's with the Bears and the Colts. And then he winds up landing with the Browns. And because of the injury to Deshaun Watson, he quarterbacks Cleveland in that game against San Francisco. And, hey, look, let's be honest, man. The, the Browns didn't win the game because P.J. Walker you know, played out of his mind. They won the game because their defense was fantastic and San Francisco got a little bit banged up. But it was so gratifying to see a guy like him be able to sort of have his moment in the NFL. He started games before. He, he started down in Carolina, but he didn't have a ton of success. Five, five touchdowns against 13 interceptions for his career. 
But man, you know, in this moment, he was able to shine. And there's lots of stories like that, man. I, another guy who's who's going to get an opportunity maybe to do something similar is Tyson Bagent. I don't even know how to say Tyson's last name. Is it Bagent? Is it Bagent? Uh, the uh, the quarterback in Chicago out of Little Shepherd College in West Virginia, who's now going to get a chance to quarterback the Bears for a little bit with Justin Fields out. And maybe he'll have his moment, man. Maybe maybe you'll see something similar. But the thing that I think that's interesting about all these guys is the following. In each and every instance, these under-the-radar guys prepared for an opportunity that they were never guaranteed would come. But when it did, they were ready and they took advantage of it. And that's the thing I think that is so phenomenal about so many of the young men playing the game of football. When you look around at how hard these guys work with no guarantee that they'll ever make it anywhere close to the NFL. I think about my own team, my high school team that I coach here in Ocean City, New Jersey. And, you know, we've, we've been we've a program that had a lot of success over the last six, seven years, but in the last couple of years, we haven't been as good, and we've gone up against some great high-level competition, and we don't have big-time Division One kids. I don't have a single scholarship kid on my current roster. And we played a team this past weekend, Millville High School, a defending champion, probably most famously known as the, the alma mater of Mike Trout. And, boy, they got some dudes right now, man. They got a kid named Lotzier Brooks, who's a junior wide receiver there, who's got scholarship offers from Alabama and Georgia and every powerhouse in in college football and Lotzier Brooks is going to go play D1 somewhere he hasn't committed anywhere yet and he scored four touchdowns against us on Friday night we just didn't have an answer I didn't have a kid or or a scheme that was going to be good enough for him and we and we scrapped and we played hard and I was proud of our guys but we just didn't have enough dudes to be able to ha- hang with them but when I look at my at our team in Ocean City I I look at these kids who love to play the game and they work so hard man they work so hard, and most of them will never play beyond high school. We may, we probably have four, three, four kids tops who will go on to play college football, and none of them at the high D1 level. And it's for the love of the game. And these guys get to college, right, and they're now thousands upon thousands of college players, and only a small handful of them are going to make it to the NFL, yet so many of these guys work, right? They work for the opportunity that may never come. And so when it does, and when they can capture it, and when they, they can have their moment, for me, that's so gratifying to see, because I have a, a little bit of an inside window to what's gone into that. I saw Isaiah Pacheco when he was 15 years old, and, and what he overcame to make it, first of all, out of Vineland, New Jersey, a tough place, and then to Rutgers, and then to the NFL. And, and there are many stories like his, and PJ Walker is one of those stories. And so, you know, I kind of take my hat off, man, because it's fun to root for the underdog. It really is. It's it's more fun for me to root for the underdog than it is to root for the favorite because everybody can everybody can get on board with just kind of riding through with the favorite. It's easy, you know, it's not there's nothing challenging there. You you win and you celebrate and you know, but it all at the at the end of the day feels expected. It feels like the thing that should happen. But when the thing that shouldn't happen or or that doesn't seem likely to happen when that occurs that's special and so i'll always be a sucker for the underdog and i'll always be a sucker for those moments where the thing you don't expect 
happens and the joy that it brings to people. And it's just another reason why football is such a special, special game. So shout out to all the underdogs right now who are killing it in the NFL. All right, one last little little segment here. That's a quick one before we, we sign off here in episode number 27. And that is a quick look ahead at two of the week seven games, just two of them. We're going to look uh, at what I think are the two most intriguing matchups in week seven. Start with Detroit at Baltimore. Speaking of underdogs, those plucky Lions, they're not underdogs anymore, man. They're still the fun story because, again, they haven't won anything. They're 5-1, and one, but they haven't won anything. They haven't won the division. They haven't won their division, whether it was the NFC Central or now the NFC North, since 1993. And they haven't won a playoff game since 1991. So there's nothing, there's nothing about that that says that these guys are front runners. But they're starting to play like it. They're starting to play like a team that's expected to win games. And that's fun when you think about the Detroit Lions, one of the most downtrodden franchises in the history of the NFL. And this week, they're going to go into M&T Bank Stadium to play at Baltimore in a tough environment. And it may be their, their toughest challenge yet. Now, now you could say, well, yeah, they, they went into Kansas City on opening night and they won that game. And that's understandable. Right, that they that that was an incredibly tough environment, but they also had all summer to prepare for that game. You know, they they had an, an endless amount of time, seemingly, to get ready for the Chiefs, and you know, the Chiefs were not yet into you know who they were going to be. The first game of the year is always an unknown, and so while that was a great win for Detroit, I'll be I'll probably be more impressed if they can go into Baltimore this weekend and win because we're now into the season and teams are starting to establish their identities. And 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 now you only get one short week to prepare, which is really just a couple of practices. So if Detroit at five and one can win in Baltimore this weekend, that will be a real statement win for the Lions. And the other game I think is fascinating in week seven is the Sunday night game between Miami and Philadelphia, Miami coming into Philly. Who knows? The Phillies may have locked up a World Series bid by Sunday night, and the town may just be geeked up and and turn the link into an absolute, just you know, like a rave, man. It, it could be crazy there. Philly fans are some of the loudest uh, in the country, but Miami comes in with that potent offense. The Eagles reeling a little bit after that shocking loss to the Jets. The thing that will be interesting to see with Philly is how how do they respond on offense? Their offensive coordinator, Brian Johnson, in his first year as coordinator, he's a, he's a little bit under the spotlight right now in Philadelphia. Uh, in that loss to the Jets, Johnson, despite having maybe the best offensive line in, in the NFL, or at least, at least a top three line, and a really potent running attack, opted to throw the ball 47 times against just 22 runs in that Jets game, which included the back-breaking Jalen Hurts interception uh, with under two minutes to play. And there's a lot of people who feel as though Johnson's game plans and play calling have been uncreative and very predictable. Uh, and so it'll be really interesting to see how he responds in a big spot against one of the best teams in the NFL. So Detroit, Baltimore, and Miami at Philly. Those are probably the marquee games from Week 7. Okay, that's going to do it for us, man. Another episode of the call sheet. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope we learned a little bit. Uh, you know, today we were, we weren't really talking coaching as much. This is usually a show that likes to talk about coaching, but there were some good stories, and I and I I'm glad I had an opportunity to get to tell them to you, share them with you. 
So we'll be back next week for episode number 28 and to talk about week seven in the NFL. And I'm sure it's going to be exciting. So hope everybody comes back. Take care. 